Beneath the beauty of our natural world and the mundane order of our lives, there exists a lingering sensation in the darkest corners of our minds. We thirst for more than what we can see, more than what we can prove, and more than what makes us feel safe. We want to believe in the monster behind the glowing red eyes, the assailant behind the labored breathing in the dark, the presence behind the unexplained occurrences. Sometimes we use the idea of more to quell our fears. Sometimes, however, we use the idea of more to encourage them. And left unchecked, compounded by our imagination, it's easy for those fears to fester. I'm Austin Rogers, and I'd like to tell you a story. A person's smile can say a lot about them. Sometimes a smile can reveal motivations or intentions. Sometimes a smile can be a lie. And there are many different kinds of smile, from a small passing smirk to a wide gleeful grin. You can say hello with a smile or goodbye. You can express approval or enjoyment. A smile can be a challenge or a symbol of victory. And of course, smiles can be contagious. But then again, so can madness. Motivations are important to us. Other people's motivations, that is. Understanding motivations helps us understand a lot about a person's actions and behaviors. We connect common motivations to common behaviors. Sometimes we use this connection to justify the behaviors, or even excuse them, but sometimes we use this connection to condemn. Either way, having this connection on hand makes us feel a lot safer. The more we know about something, the less we fear it, at least some of the time. What really disturbs us are the behaviors we can't explain. The actions that we can't find the motivation for. We're especially disturbed when those actions are heinous. The more horrific the behavior, the more terrifying a lack of motivation is. Perhaps worst of all are those times when the ultimate evil behavior has no clear motivation. That behavior being, of course, murder. A loss of life demands rationality. It demands meaning and explanation. When we lose someone we love and can find no reasoning behind it, it can be hard, if not impossible, for us to be at peace. When it comes to the following story, I can give you the facts, but not the answers. Those blanks will have to be filled in by your imagination. Cerizo, Minnesota is a small town about 30 minutes southwest of Duluth. It was founded by a group of Italian immigrants at the end of the 19th century. Originally set up as a farming town, Cerizo was mostly confined to a single road with a general store in the middle. Times weren't easy for the people of Cerizo in the early days. The farms that represented the whole of their town's economy weren't proving profitable. The quality of their goods and the size of their yields were repeatedly failing to be up to par, but the town still grew. Several businesses and professionals saw an opportunity to snag a monopoly in the small town and remained optimistic of its growth. By 1915, Cerezo's population had grown to nearly 800. They'd acquired a physician, several restaurants, 
a small public theater, they elected a mayor and even had one of the country's earliest gas stations. You see, Cerizo's main street also happened to be a major roadway in between Duluth and Minneapolis. Travelers would almost always pass through town, and as automobiles became more common, so too did the traffic through Cerizo. The farming town hit its first peak in 1918. They'd elected a sheriff, and their population had hit 1,000. Unfortunately, this was also the year of a devastating fire. The fire began in the general store and spread quickly throughout the many new buildings within the center of town, including the theater. Cerizo had no official fire department, and firemen from Duluth weren't able to respond for well over an hour. By the time the flames subsided, eight buildings had burned down. One of those buildings, the theater, happened to be filled with patrons that night. In the theater alone, almost 100 people died. Over 100 families had lost loved ones, and eight major businesses vital to the town's economy had been destroyed. The town's population began to shrink some time after. Many of the families who'd lost loved ones couldn't bear to remain, so they packed up and moved elsewhere. In 1925, with the town's population at 500, the city council decided on one last attempt to save their town. A series of loans were taken out on the city's behalf. The loans totaled in what would be today over $15 million. With this money, the town revitalized its main street, opening new businesses and attractions aimed to pull in motorists. The majority of the farmers sold their lands and livestock and moved closer into town to get in on the action. By 1929, the Great Depression hit America. The stock market crashed, investors lost everything, but somehow, Cerizo managed to flourish. Perhaps due to a combination of the city's important geography in between Duluth and Minneapolis, and the town's brand new main attraction street. In 1933, another stroke of luck hit the town. By some miracle, all of the banks that the town had owed failed in the same year. Each bank was large enough that Cerizo's loans were a drop in the bucket compared to what they lost, so... Cerizo sat debt-free and prosperous in a country void of prosperity. Fast forward to 1962. Cerizo's population now sat at 3,500. The main street's attractions had tripled with the additions of new restaurants, shopping outlets and activities, and the major roadway was now a major highway. There was a public school, a grocery store, a town hall, a car dealership, the whole deal. Cerizo had finally succeeded in growing into a real city. Sheriff Graham McKenna, a World War II Navy vet, was elected in 1960 after serving 10 years as a Cerizo deputy. He was well-liked, had a loving family, made the town feel safe, and was touted as the obvious successor to Cerizo's very first mayor, John Brown, who by that time was 92 years old. But 1962 would not prove to be a good year for Sheriff McKenna or for the town at large, and it all started with a grisly discovery. It was a particularly muggy June, and Sheriff McKenna responded to a nighttime call at the mayor's residence. Deputy Raymond Roberts had beaten the sheriff there and sat on the doorstep with his head in his hands. Graham paused briefly at his deputy's side before taking a deep breath and walking up the steps. Inside the lavish, colonial-style residence was a foyer sporting marble accents and gold fixtures. In the center of the foyer sat a long white sofa. On the sofa was the mayor, dead. Just dead would have been easier, 
but when Sheriff McKenna reached the body, he saw that it was only most of Mayor Brown. The bottom half of his head had been sawed off from just below his nose to the top of his neck. The remainder of his head lay flat next to the decapitated torso. Graham stood solemnly over the corpse for some time before noticing something in the breast pocket of the late mayor's shirt. It was a piece of folded paper, and the sheriff pulled it out. When he unfolded the paper, he revealed a smiley face in thick black ink. Obviously, the connection wasn't lost on the sheriff, but Cerizo had experienced less than a handful of murders in its near 70-year existence, and never, by far, anything this gruesome. The mayor's head had been cut with startling precision. The slice was perfectly straight and clearly calculated. Later, a Duluth City coroner would determine the cause of death to be asphyxiation. Sheriff McKenna was much more of a peacekeeper than a detective, so right off the bat he was at a loss. The mayor was, as far as Graham knew, universally well-liked. His suspect list was thin, but included some local vagrants and the sole surviving business owner of those that lost their buildings during the fire of 1918. His name was Stephen Morrow, and he was approaching his 80th birthday. He had two sons with his late wife, both of whom had children of their own. His sons were co-owners of a new business on the Cerizo Main Strip and had supported their ailing father for some time. Morrow lived in an in-law suite attached to his eldest son's home. The home was a modest but spacious two-story on a side road a few minutes from the main street. Sheriff McKenna went to visit Morrow while his deputies continued searching for evidence at the crime scene. He didn't go with high expectations, but was nevertheless eager to begin crossing names off his list. Graham pulled into the driveway, stepped out of his cruiser, and was immediately stopped by what he saw. On the front door of the Morrow house was a large, black, spray-painted smiley face. Graham quickly pulled his revolver out of its holster and, in his flustered state, did so with much less grace than he'd hoped for. He began approaching the door with knees bent and gun raised. When he got closer, he saw the door was open an inch or two. He leaned in with his ear towards the door, pausing briefly to listen for movement inside. When he heard none, he called out, announcing the sheriff's presence. When he heard no response, he called for Stephen by name, again hearing nothing in return. Finally, he opened the door and inched his way inside, following behind his gun at all times. He entered the main hallway that led to the kitchen and living room on one side, and the staircase and bathroom door on the other. He slowly peered into the kitchen and saw it empty and seemingly clean. He stepped forward cautiously, making his way to the living room. As he got closer, he could see flickering lights coming from inside. Eventually, he was close enough to the opening to see a TV broadcasting bright static. Immediately, Graham noticed the TV was dripping with blood. Graham paused for a moment, his breath quickening, his pulse rising. He'd been in high-pressure situations before. After all, it was a highway town with all sorts of folk passing through. Then it occurred to him, in his moment of adrenaline-fueled clarity, that the most likely suspect was a traveler just passing through. Though they didn't have a name for it at the time, Graham imagined it was what we know today as a serial killer. The sheriff peeked his head slowly through the opening to the living room and was struck by the scene. 
He collapsed against the wall, slid to the floor, and his gun fell from his hand, producing a loud crash of noises as it did. He began to weep as he was unable to pry his eyes from what he saw. In the living room was Stephen Morrow, his son and daughter-in-law, and their two young children. They all sat upright on a brown sectional couch, dead. Just like the mayor, all five were missing the bottom half of their heads, and the tops were sitting on the necks of the decapitated bodies. Graham's cries bellowed through the house. Not since the Second World War had he seen such brutality. After some time, his cries quieted just enough that he could hear faint speaking in the distance. After a few moments, he realized it was coming from outside. Graham rushed to his feet and bolted out the door to find the radio in his cruiser blaring with calls. The calls came from the police station, which was being bombarded with emergency calls from across town. Throughout Cerizo, residents were being found dead, their faces mutilated, and a smiley face left as a calling card at the scenes. The sheriff's department was low on manpower, but Graham quickly sent his deputies out to form roadblocks and stop cars attempting to leave town. All told, they'd found 30 people dead over the course of the night. The cause of death differed from scene to scene. Some people had been suffocated, others strangled, some were stabbed, and several had been beaten to death. But every scene had those same elements. Surgically removed and separated head, and a smiley face. Graham was at the police station, attempting to process dozens of reports, interview dozens of potential witnesses, and keep the calm amongst so many families who had lost loved ones so horrifically and so suddenly. He deputized several trustworthy locals, but was still severely low on help. He'd put in calls to the Minnesota State Police, and they'd sent out a detachment of troopers to aid in the investigations and help ease the town's mind. Graham was reviewing every piece of evidence and every report that he had, looking for any commonalities that could provide motivation. None of the victims had been robbed or sexually assaulted, none of the victims had defensive wounds, and none of the scenes showed signs of struggle. Sheriff McKenna was almost resigned to going home for the night when a call came in from a pair of state troopers manning a roadblock a few miles outside of town. They'd pulled over a suspicious character, and Graham rushed to the scene. The man's name was John Ricci, and he was a well-known associate of Minneapolis mob boss Deuce Casper. Though never convicted, Ricci was a suspect in a handful of homicides in the big city. When the sheriff arrived, Ricci sat in the back of the trooper's cruiser while one of the troopers searched his car. Ricci stared forward emotionless as the contents of the car were unveiled. The troopers found two guns, one revolver and one shotgun, hidden under the back seats. In the glove box, they found several knives, including a large kitchen knife and a switchblade, and a pair of black leather gloves. In the trunk was what seemed like a murder kit. Baseball bats, duct tape, rope, powdered bleach, garbage bags, a shovel, and, particularly damningly in Graham's opinion, a tattered balaclava. Ricci was arrested and brought to the station, and his car was impounded to be searched further. Throughout questioning, Ricci calmly denied any knowledge of the mass murders that occurred so abruptly the night before. He repeatedly asserted that he was just passing through. 
His story couldn't be corroborated by any townsfolk as he didn't stop anywhere in town, or at least wasn't seen doing so. The sheriff tried to no avail to get Ricci to slip into revealing details of the murders that only the killer would know. Over the course of hours and hours of interrogation, Ricci's most memorable comment was this. No one in this town is worth the time it'd take to kill them. Ricci's car was exhaustively searched and every weapon and item was examined for blood, hairs, fibers, anything, but it was all clean. There were traces of the powder bleach throughout most of the car, but otherwise nothing. But Graham was sure he'd found his man. Ricci was sent to Duluth to stand trial, and Graham traveled to the city every day of the trial whether to give testimony or simply to watch. The evidence against Ricci was entirely circumstantial, and Ricci's attorney, obviously mafia-produced, was very compelling. Ricci was acquitted of all charges and set free. Graham was back to square one. He'd interviewed and ruled out every suspect he could think of with any tiny connection to the town or the victims. Finally, to the disbelief of everyone, the massive murder case went cold. Graham never stopped believing that Ricci was guilty. A notorious mafia hitman who went mad one night began a reign of terror across a small town. But, with no new evidence over the years, and double jeopardy preventing Ricci from ever standing trial for the murders again, that was a hopeless avenue. As difficult as it was, life kept moving in Cerezo. Families tried their best to move on, and in 1965, Graham successfully ran for mayor. Jumping ahead to 1972, the 10th anniversary of the June 1962 massacre. Mayor McKenna had helped return Cerezo to peace and prosperity, had overseen the massive growth of the police department, and was celebrating his oldest child going to college. On an early June morning, Graham awoke and made his way downstairs for the daily paper. The headline was initially a pleasant surprise in Graham's eyes. It read, Mafia Monster Ricci Found Murdered. It seemed that time, or perhaps karma, had caught up with the Mafia hitman. He'd been found dead, alone in a small apartment the day before. But, as Graham read on, his cause for celebration quickly dissipated. The article read as follows. Suspected Mafia hitman John Ricci was found dead of apparent murder in his Minneapolis apartment yesterday morning. According to police, the cause of death was asphyxiation, and Ricci had been mutilated in some way, though specific details have not yet been made available to the public. Asphyxiation and mutilation. Two familiar words that shook Graham to his core. Graham grasped the paper tight and ran inside. He put in a call to a former deputy who now served as a city police detective in Duluth. Without explanation, the detective knew what Graham was going to ask. And the answer was yes. The bottom half of Ricci's head had been carefully removed. After the call, Graham let out a sigh of disbelief. He picked up the paper and opened it to read the remainder of the article. Graham's mouth hung open, his eyes widened, and his hands shook. Across the centerfold of the newspaper was a large, black, smiley face. Beneath it was a single sentence. Why the long face, Sheriff? Don't you know the Italian word for smile? And the answer, of course, is Cerezo.
I'm Austin Rogers, the writer and producer of Fester. Backing tracks and music are by Alex Mason via freemusicarchive.org. Except for the intro music, that's yours truly. If you like the show, feel free to share on social media or subscribe via Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to contact me, feel free to drop a line at festerpodcast at mail, just mail, dot com. And until next time, I hope your dreams are a lot happier than the story I just told you.